this morning. You know, there are several different analogies one can draw upon to describe what happens in baptism, but one of my very favorite is that of the wedding ceremony. Just as a man and woman are joined together on that very special day in baptism, we are united with Jesus Christ. But that is not where the similarities end. On that particular very special day, that husband and that bride quickly come to the realization that they now belong to a whole new family the moment they say I do the same is true for us when we arise from the waters of baptism one of the places that we're reminded of this is in Acts chapter 2 in verse 41 those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day 3,000 people started out the day as strangers Maybe acquaintances, maybe friends, perhaps some belonged to their own individual families. But by the end of that day, those 3,000 who had been baptized into Jesus Christ were now added to, they were joined together spiritually and relationally. And every single person who puts Christ on in baptism is now added to this exact same family, the family of God. I love this quote. The local church is not merely a place we go. It's designed to be a place we call home and a people we call family. That's exciting, but also a a tad bit scary. Let me explain why. Do you remember the very first time you spent time with your spouse's extended family? Maybe it was that first family Thanksgiving dinner or maybe that first summer family reunion. And that was kind of exciting. It was kind of fun for about 10 minutes. But after a few conversations, you began to realize that, you know what, in your spouse's extended family, there were a whole lot of carnival crazies. I mean, they just, your spouse somehow managed to hide these individuals from you all the way to the point you said, I do, but now they were just coming out of the woodwork. You were having one conversation after another, and it began to hit you. You know what? These people are now my family as well. You know, it's not long after you're baptized into Jesus Christ that this exact same realization hits you about the family of God. There are some nut jobs in this family. Folks with serious baggage, personality quirks, annoying habits, and jerky tendencies. And oh, by the way, you're one of them. We all are. Yes, in baptism, we receive a whole new identity. We go from sinner to saint. But you know what? That doesn't change your personality. It doesn't refine your annoying traits and it doesn't put an end to your bad habits I learned this truth at a really young age it was a Sunday evening one of the teenagers in our congregation was baptized into Jesus Christ and after everybody had spent time giving hugs and congratulations to this young lady me and a few of my elementary age friends decided we would just begin to terrorize her I don't know exactly why but we just thought it might be fun to give her grief And I don't remember exactly what we said to her, but 
we wouldn't let up. Now, to her credit, she was patient for an extended period of time, but finally, she broke. And when she broke, she laid a curse word on us, like one I'd only heard rumors about. (laughs) And it stopped me in my tracks. And I stood there with eyes bugging and jaw hanging until finally I composed myself, and I mumbled something along the lines of, I thought you were just baptized. Now, that story says a lot more about what a little punk I was than it says anything about her. But in that moment, I came to realize that in baptism, baptism, it cleanses us, but it does not reform us. Transformation is the work of the Holy Spirit, and it is a lifelong process. And do you know what that means? It means that being family is not going to be easy. When we read about the first converts to Christianity in Acts chapter 2, you get the impression that all of a sudden they were just assimilated into this one big, happy, wonderful family. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, we read about these people that they spent every day together, that shared all things in common. They shared their resources with one another. And it's just this, this beautiful picture. It's a beautiful, inspiring picture of what the church can and should be. But in so many ways, I think what Luke is actually doing here is he's giving us kind of a Facebook or Instagram post rather than reflecting a daily reality. You know what I mean? So often what we love to do as human beings is we post pictures on social media of the family as we're all smiling at each other right before we eat that delicious meal. But what we don't post pictures of is the knockdown drag out fight we had 10 minutes before the meal between the kids who are arguing over whose turn it was to sit the table or between the husband and wife about who forgot to turn on the oven timer we just leave those things off and I don't doubt the accuracy of Luke's description of the Jerusalem church in Acts chapter 2 but common sense tells me that these people got annoyed with each other (laughs) On many occasions, not just here and there. And that has to be the case because this church was made up of sinners just like every other church. Now, even if they did manage to pull it off and they're always getting along with one another, that's not typical of the normal average church, is it? It certainly wasn't the the reality for the Philippian church. In fact, in that church, you had two sisters in Christ who had gotten so sideways with each other that the Apostle Paul had to make a special appeal for them to somehow figure out how to work things out together. We read these words in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 2 from Paul. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Things were going well in that church. They were crossways with each other because of these two ladies and people were taking sides. And and Paul says, listen, I'm pleading with you. I'm begging you. I'm asking you, figure this out because we're supposed to be family. Let's get along. Let's do life together in the right way. And that idyllic picture, it, it wasn't true of the church in Corinth, was it? So a lot of tension in that church because of those individuals' crazy behavior. And they had some crazy behavior going on in that church and that church family. You had individuals who were divided because they had allegiances towards different church leaders. 
Some people were saying, you know what, I really like Paul. He's a great guy, great teacher. I'm going to follow him. And others were saying, I like Apollos. And so they had all these people, and they're divided over it. That's going on in the church. That's not all that was going on in the church. You also had in that church a son who was sleeping with his father's wife. And that created some problems, as you might imagine. You had brothers in that congregation who were taking other brothers to court. And you had people that were showing up to participate in the agape feast, the Lord's Supper. And they were getting drunk before others actually got there to participate. What I want you to understand is you had a group of individuals who would have made up perfect guests for one of those shows that we see on TV. Their family but they're a mess. To some degree, I imagine the church family will always be a bit dysfunctional, but we can come a whole lot closer to reflecting the Jerusalem ideal than the Corinthian circus. If we get serious about what Scripture has to say to us in regards to how we are to conduct ourselves in the family of God. And Scripture has a lot to say on this matter because like a good parent, the Heavenly Father, he not only wants us to get along, but he wants us to bring out the very best in one another. And so, in fact, over 59 times in Scripture, you will find direct instructions about to treat each other or not to treat each other in a very specific way. We refer to these passages in Scripture as the one another passages. For the next several weeks, we're just going to spend some time looking at these particular texts. Now, when it comes to the one another passages, there are a couple of things that are very important for us to keep in mind. One is simply this. The one another's are meant to be reciprocal in nature. Reciprocal in nature. There are things that we should do and that these are things that we should receive from each other. The one another's are not solely for the super spiritual or the gifted, or the called, or for those in positions of church leadership. Every person who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ is expected to strive to live out these one another's. Now, I wanted to mention this on the front end because here's what can happen in a sermon series of this nature. In some ways, it is easy for us to become very cynical and very critical as we're listening to this type of series, especially if we believe we're on the short end of the receiving stick. For you to get the most out of this sermon series, I want to encourage you to avoid that type of thinking. Forget about what other people are doing or what they are not doing and simply focus on how you can grow in each one of these particular practices. If each of us are living out the one another's, no one in the family of the God is going to go wanting. So Satan's going to work on you throughout this series. I'm going to say some things. If this is what scripture says about how we are to treat one another, and Satan's going to get in your ear and he's going to say, you know what, you do that really well. But you know who doesn't do that very well? It's the Jones family. They don't do that very well at all. And you're going to get interested in focusing on them, and it's going to take you right out of this. Don't let that happen. Stay centered on you and you only, and you'll get a lot out of this sermon series. Now, the second thing I want you to know about the one another's is that one another's are non-negotiable. These texts are not, oh, look, it's a 
suggested best practices. They are commandments. And that is so important to keep in mind because some of the things that we talk about in this series, you're not going to want to do for a variety of reasons. We're going to talk about some things and the thought's going to hit your mind. That's too hard. I don't want to do that. Or you might think, I'm not called to do that. I'm not gifted to do that. Or you might even think this, that would make me feel awkward. So I don't want to do it. And I am right there with you. But at the same time, this is something that God expects us to put into practice regardless. Nobody has the right to say yes to encourage one another. I'll do that. But then say no to showing hospitality to one another. We don't get to pick and choose. There is an expectation for every single one of us to put in as much effort as we possibly can to faithfully live out these practices. You say, why? Well, for the exact same reason that you expect your kids to help with cleaning up the dishes, whether they want to do it or they feel called or gifted to do it. God, being a good heavenly father, knows what is best for us as individuals, and he knows what is best for us as a church family. And so through the Holy Spirit, he said, these are things that you should do or not do in the family of God. Now, all of the one another's are very important, but there's one one another that stands out above the rest. In fact, it is so important that Jesus, John, Peter, and Paul all remind us that we are to conduct ourselves in this way, that we are to treat one another in this way. In fact, Jesus emphasizes this particular one another just hours before his arrest. John chapter 13, verse 34. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Not wanting this command to go in one ear and out the other, Jesus comes right back to it just a few breaths later, and he says this in John chapter 15 and verse 12. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And just in case they missed it the first time or the second time, Jesus comes back to it a third time. And then he says in verse 17 of John chapter 15, this is my command, love each other. Well, if God lived in a home, I have a feeling that this would be the saying carved on one of those wooden plaque thingies or painted on one of those wooden plaque thingies that goes in the family entryway, right? Love one another is the family mission statement for the family of God. Now, why is this particular one another more important than all of the other one another's? Well, you know why. Because all of the other one another's are simply practical expressions of this particular one another, of, of love. Everything that we discuss in this sermon series, it's going to fall into place if we just do this one thing, love one another really, really well. If we get this down, everything else will get down as well. So as we focus our attention on this particular commandment to love one another, I, I just found myself coming back to this thought or these words from Paul to the church at Thessalonica, especially as I thought about this church. And I want you to listen to what he says, chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. 
And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. I have found the Campbell Church to be an extremely loving congregation. I want to thank you for that. I see that in so many different ways, and I see it on a regular basis. Not just in the way that you've embraced me and treated me, but I see the way you embrace guests. I see the way that you take care of each other, how you respond to needs. This is an incredibly loving church. And so part of me thought, well, you know, is this even necessary? I, I'm not going to say anything new that they haven't heard before, but the reason that I'm coming back to this is for the exact same reason that Paul wrote that letter and what he said is because I want to encourage us as a church to do this more and more and more to continue to grow in this particular area. Now, for that to happen, we must remember that love is a decision. That love is a decision. Is it only a decision? No, of course not. It's not. It's a feeling as well. I mean, when you go out on that special date with that special someone and you hold hands, your heart feels how? You get all ooey and gooey inside, right? I mean, you feel that. You look into that person's eyes and you just feel so much love for that person. You feel like your heart could explode in that moment. And in that particular moment, when they look at you and say, oh, sweetheart, would you go and refill my Coke for me? You say, oh, I'd love to. Because you just so feel so loving towards them, right? But there are other moments when your heart feels like it's going to explode with frustration and irritation. Because that very special someone can also be a very special some kind of jerk at times, right? And in those particular moments, it's very hard to love the person. And so for us to love consistently, be it in a marriage or in the church family, one has to decide to love whether the feelings are present or not. And too often in trying to decide how to treat another person, there's a question that comes to mind consciously or unconsciously that usually sounds like this. Do I like this person? Do I like this person enough to include him? Do I like this person enough to listen to her intently? Do I like this person enough to say yes to his or her favor that they've just requested? I'm not sure it's possible not to ask that question. It, it just seems to naturally come to mind. It, it pops up in my mind does as your, in your mind as well. However, we must not allow our feelings to set the course of direction for our actions or our behavior. Even when you're dealing with a person who grates on your very last nerve, you can still act in love because love is far more choice than it is feeling. And here's the cool thing about choosing to act in love. Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, when you choose to go ahead and act in love despite your feelings, that ends up changing how you feel about the person in that particular moment. I'm not saying always, but often. Try it. You may not feel great about that particular person. You may not like what they've asked you to do. But if you make the decision, you know what? I'm going to act in love. I'm going to choose to do this. You go ahead and you do that. Oftentimes, you realize, you know person isn't so bad I, I didn't mind doing that for them I feel a little bit closer to that person because I went ahead and took that step 
So let me say it again. We must act our way into our feeling, into a feeling rather than allowing our feelings to dictate how we act. Do I like this person is the wrong question. How can I best show love to this person that God has brought into my life at this particular time? That is the right question. Is it easy to act in love when feelings are gone? No, it is not. In fact, it is one of the most difficult things that we are asked to do in life. To treat a person with love when those feelings are not there, it is incredibly difficult to do. And so where do you find the motivation to go ahead and act in love when you really don't feel like it? That motivation comes from an understanding that love is not just a choice. It is a debt owed. It's a debt owed. Paul wrote to a group of a diverse church family. No doubt this diverse church family struggled at times to really get along and love each other and to treat each other well. And so he writes to them about this ongoing debt in Romans chapter 13 and verse 8. And he said, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. Now who exactly are we indebted to? Are you indebted to me? Am I indebted to you? No. I don't owe you anything. You don't owe me anything. We do owe, however, God everything. We owe him everything. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10 says this, This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In the giving of his son to pardon our sin, to deliver us from death. God paid a price that cannot be quantified. The size of debt that we owe God makes the national debt look like a small car loan. We owe him big time. I'm not sure we think about that often enough. I'm not sure we take it seriously enough. At least I know I don't. You say, well, how do you repaying this enormous debt? You go back to the words of Jesus. Jesus said again in John chapter 15, verse 12, my command is this, love each other as I've loved you. Every time we choose to treat others, love others in the same way that Jesus has loved us, we make payment on that particular debt. We'll never repay it. But we make payment on that debt when we love others the way Jesus loved us, which begs the question, how did Jesus love us? Well, you know, Jesus loved us first. He didn't wait for us to take action. He went ahead and took action in love. He took the initiative. He left heaven to come love people. The natural tendency is to respond to those who love us, right? If you greet me, then I'm going to greet you. If you invite me over to your home for a meal, then I might reciprocate the, that, uh, that gesture of love. I got thrown off. I, pr- I probably won't. I'm not going to cook for you. I might have you over for some fast food, but I probably so I got to be careful how I say that. But we, just, we do what others do to us, and that, that's not the way Jesus lived his life. In fact, Jesus was always out front just 
surprising people with his generous gestures of love. Surprised a leper because he said, I'm not just going to heal you, I'm going to touch you. He surprised a Samaritan woman because she walked up to a well and here he was, a Jewish man in the middle of the day and he struck up a conversation with her. He surprised a tax collector by saying, what do you say we go have a meal together? He surprised a woman caught in adultery who was about to be stoned by standing up and protecting her and defending her. This is the way that Jesus went about life just always out in front, surprising people with these enormous gestures of love. And that's what it means to follow Jesus, isn't it? It means that we as a people, as a family of God, we live our lives out front, surprising people continually with just unexpected, amazing gestures of love. We take the initiative. But Jesus also loved at great cost. 1 John three sixteen. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. To love like Jesus means you're willing to give up whatever, your time, your energy, your finances, to bless the lives of others. It's so important that we embody this as a church family. When we truly embody this as a church family, we're not going to have to twist people's arms to get involved in student ministry. Is that hard work to do? Yes, it is hard work to do. But, but what better way to show love towards our students and towards their families to be in, than to be involved in their lives? When we get serious about this as a church family of loving one another really, really well, We're not going to have to send out one reminder after another reminder, tell one story after another story about people who are being blessed through ministries like Friends Speak. Does it take time? Does it take energy? Yes, it does. But what better love to show people who don't know Jesus Christ and saying, you know what, I'll engage in conversation with you once a week. I'll teach you how to read. We'll use the Bible because I want you to know Jesus and because I love you. When we get serious about this as a church family, we're not going to have to beg you to start new home groups. Is it hard to leave a home group that you've been a part of for 20 years? You better believe it's difficult. But what better way to show love to those who are guests or those who are new members than by making space for them? Now, you can't do all of these things, obviously, but you can do something, right? And so let's make sure that each of us are invested in loving others in a very practical, real way. Now, quick reminder, there's a big difference between being friendly and being loving. Friendly says, how are you doing? Loving says, I'll do whatever necessary to make your life better. For us to to thrive as a church family, we can't afford to settle for friendly. We do friendly really well. Let's make sure we do loving even better. So in closing, there's something I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you to pray every single day for the next seven days these words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 12. May the Lord make our love increase and overflow for each other and everyone else. 
May the Lord make our love increase and overflow for each other and everyone else. Now, next Sunday, you're going to have the opportunity to share that. So I don't want you to just pray these words this week. I want to encourage you to memorize these words next week, this week. Because next week, we're going to come back together, and we're going to say these words together without the screen, right? At least initially. Because we want these words to live in our hearts. Because here's what I really hope happens, that we not only pray these words and that we not only memorize these words, but we live these words this week by taking the initiative to show extraordinary, unexpected, generous love towards every single person that Jesus brings our way.